Hello, and welcome to the Wanderings Podcast, a photographer's exploration of art, science, and world culture. I am your host, Pedro Bonato, a fine art and advertising photographer based in Toronto, Canada. In this show, I talk to artists, designers, scientists, filmmakers, authors, entrepreneurs, people who are creating inspiring work in a variety of fields. I have been working as a professional photographer and as a musician for a few years, and I am often inspired by history, science, mythology, and popular culture in the photographs that I create. In this podcast, I try to go a little bit deeper in the stories that inspire me, and I hope will inspire you too. On today's show, we journey back in time to the Baghdad of the 10th century. We'll hear ancient melodies on a beautiful instrument called the kanun and explore forgotten music, poetry, and history. My guest is Dr. George Sawa, a renowned musician and historian specializing in medieval Arabic music. George has written four books, published over 50 articles, and has taught undergrad and graduate courses on music of the Middle East in the University of Toronto and York University. In 2005, he received the prestigious Lifetime Achievement Award from the Egyptian Ministry of Culture for his research in Arabic music history. What I love about George is that he's at the same time a scholar and an artist. He creates beautiful music that echoes a thousand years of history. I hope I can get to my 70s with the same enthusiasm that George has, always working on new projects, bringing music, thought, and joy everywhere he goes. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. George Sauer. I am here today with Dr. George Sawa, historian, musician, and a master extraordinaire of a, a bunch of different things. Thank you for being the first person to be interviewed in my Wanderings podcast. Right. Uh, so welcome, George. You're very welcome. Thank you, my friend. Yeah. So uh, the first thing I wanted to do is just uh, to give a brief introduction about your work and what you do, right? And about yourself. What I do now is uh, do research on medieval Arabic music, concentrated on the early Abbasid, which takes us from 750 to 950 AD. And it is the golden age, not only of music, Arabic music and Persian music, but also writing on music, music discourse. And that includes theory and storytelling about musicians. We have not, uh, we have not managed from this time onward to supersede that era. The Grand Book of Songs alone is in 10,000 pages. Wow. And it took the author, Al-Isfahani, 50 years to compile. And he can only do it, he could only do it, because the court was very enlightened. They gave him money. I mean, you expect the court to give money for people to compose music like the Esterhazy and in, in, in Austria, Vienna, Mozart and Haydn, but here on top of giving lots of money to musicians, they give money to, for research on music. Mm -hmm. And he, his full-time job was to compile the grand book of music, of songs. Right. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. And uh, in this uh, book of songs, I know we're going to talk like a lot about it because it's like a part of your life's work, right? So this was written in what period exactly, like more or it less? It was compiled in the 10th century, but using stories going back to early Islam. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah and then uh, I understand that you have uh, your PhD in uh, in the music theory and ethnomusicology. How is yeah. that? Take us well, back into that. Yeah, uh, it's a area. combination of musicology, ethnomusicology, and Middle East studies. And that took one year of red tape at U of T for them to allow me to do something in two departments, interdisciplinary. Right. Oh my God, we cannot do that. Uh -huh. But we did. So I got a very good training in musicology, mm -hmm. a good training in ethnomusicology, and also a good training in uh, sociocultural history of the, uh, of the era of Baghdad. Wow. In, uh, oh, yeah, in, in, that, in that time. And you get to know the sources, the biographical, bibliographical sources. It's a whole field of knowledge. And then you perfect your medieval Arabic. Mm -hmm. Medieval Arabic and modern Arabic use the same grammar, but medieval Arabic is more precise. 
and use a lot of words that we don't use anymore. Hmm. So you have to have an array of dictionaries to figure out the meaning. Right. And that's like part of the work that you are doing now, right? Yeah. That uh, you have these uh, like comprehensive dictionaries that yeah. compare medieval way of like writing to the um, modern way. To the modern way, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll get into that when we talk about about your book. But I was just thinking, like, so you were born in Alexandria, right? Yeah. In uh, in Egypt, and then you lived there for for a while. So twenty three years. Oh wow. Okay. So like those formative years, and then you came to. Canada, right? Yeah. So, can you talk a little bit of like the your study of music there, and then your, your journey you, to come was, to Canada? It was it was a real accident. Uh, when I was born, I found a piano in my house. The piano has a history. My father Dimitri was very organized, and he said, "Well, I have a sister, and when that sister gets married, part of her dowry is going to be a piano. It used to be a lute." But with Western influence, you want something more technologically advanced, mm. not this sort of me medieval <laughs> lute, even though the lute is a very complicated instrument. So with Western influence, and as a social status, you would have a piano as opposed to a lute. Mm. So he bought the piano for his sister. His sister never got married. She lived with us, never got married. So I inherited the piano and started to play early Abdel Halim half his songs and uh, work with Mendelo and Sack, for example, mm -hmm. by ear. Then my father said, oh, you're going to develop bad habits. <laughs> Let's take you to a piano teacher. So he took me to an absolute nutcase, Madame Irene Drakidis, <laughs> who had no other student but me. Nobody could put up with her. She was a nutcase. So I studied with her for like 12 years. An amazing musician. She played violin, she played piano. And she took courses with Alfred Cortot, very famous French piano educator. So we had Europe in Egypt without me needing to go to Europe mm -hmm. and study these wonderful works of Brahms, Beethoven, Mozart and Bach mm -hmm. with that crazy old lady. She was always 49. And after 12 years, she was still 49. She never went beyond. <laughs> and uh, then... I was also studying engineering, and part of engineering, you have to go to Europe and acquire some kind of practice. Mm -hmm. So I was lucky to go to Sweden, a very small city. They made electric switches and uh, speakers for boats, all kind of stuff. So I played piano for the Swedes, and they said, you know, okay, you play piano. Why don't you play an Egyptian instrument? You're playing Arabic music on the piano. I said, yeah, you know what? You're right. I've always loved kanun. Never seen one in actual life. I saw it in films, but never seen it. So I resolved to go at the age of 19, learn Kanun. And the way I was received in the Arabic school was unbelievable. They were so touched that somebody, middle class, most musicians in Egypt are very poor, middle class person, who, who plays piano in an advanced way, is going to condescend and play and learn the kanun. Hmm. Quote-unquote condescend, even though the kanun is a very complicated yes. instrument. So they treated me so well and they were so kind. That's my teacher in Egypt. Oh, wow. So I took four years of intensive kanun playing. Mm -hmm. I wish I had stayed longer, another 10, mm -hmm. to study with the old masters. I also happened to have studied with the last group of the old school. All right, yeah, which is something we're, we're going to talk about. Sure. And then after that, then you came to, to Canada. Yeah. Yeah, and then you've been uh, here. We were actually recording this in Toronto. You've been here. Yeah, I yeah. mean, you travel all over the world, like, for Since your performances. Since 1970, 48 years here. That's, uh, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I spent two years to do a master in musicology, ethnomusicology, seven years to do a PhD in Middle East Studies and Music. Mm -hmm. And I finished in 83, and it's been... Um, 35 years doing work on medieval Arabic music. Yeah, nonstop. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's that's amazing. And um, uh, one of the things that like we're gonna get to the to the canoe and. Um 
uh, in a bit, but I just wanted to like for the listeners that are like uh, not necessarily versed in uh, the differences between like Arabic music and Western music. So can you talk a little bit about the difference between uh, Western music and to the to yeah, Arabic music? Uh, Western music and Arabic music were the same up to the 10th century. You have a singer and you have a lute, maybe another flute and, and a drum. That's about mm-hmm. it. Then the European started to add voices. Instead of one voice, you have two singers doing different things, then three singers, then a big chorale. And then they slowly, slowly went from monophonic, only one sound, one melody, into a polyphonic. Mm-hmm. And then more and more voices were added. Then they use counterpoint when you have two melodies at the same time. Then you have harmony, it's sort of one melody with chords in it, what you call chordal music. Mm-hmm. And then bigger and bigger uh, bands and orchestras. Uh, Arabic music stayed the same, so did Turkish and Persian, and most of the non-Western world. Mm-hmm. There was sort of just one melody. And when Napoleon came, he brought the French army, and then managed to beat the Mamluk army because of their higher tech mm-hmm. in, in warfare. And then we believe that because they beat us in warfare, they're better than us in everything, including music, mm-hmm. which is not true. I mean, you have our style, and it's a very rich culture, and so is Western culture. Right. So there's this movement in Egypt. The only reason our music is not international, like Western music, is because we don't have harmony counterpoint and orchestra. So you have to move on and mm. orchestrate our music. Mm. But what do you do with the quarter tone? Right. It does not fit with the manners of harmony. And sort of utter nonsense. And I believed in that. And that's one reason I came here. And I said, well, instead of jumping from the 10th century when Europe was exactly like us, to the 18th and 19th century, when they had all this edifice of sounds, the orchestra. Let's see the steps it took Europe to go from monophonic to polyphonic. Mm-hmm. And after two years of studying the movement, I said, you know what? Let Arabic music be as it mm-hmm. is. Melody and our rhythm are much varied and richer than... Yeah. I mean, Western music has, you know, very limited number of keys, uh, time signature. Mm-hmm. Two, four, three, four, 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 and that's about it. Mm-hmm. Arabic music and Ottoman music have 111 different meters. The longest being 176, right. which is on my first CD. But they were also, in the medieval time, emitted in 200 beats to a bar. Oh, wow. Yeah. And our maqam, you know, Western music now is relegated to major and minor. Mm-hmm. Arabic music at one point had 120 different modes. Right. That use quarter tone, ninth of a tone, eighteenth of a tone. And the quarter tone theory is really misleading because you have it's way richer than just dividing yeah. the tone into into four divisions. It's eleven divisions. Right. Yeah. That's one of the things that uh, I know. It's very. It's hard to wrap your head around. You know, intuitively, whenever you listen to uh, Arabic music for the first time, or there is a certain aspect that you can't put your finger on that you yeah. don't notice, but you know clearly that it's different than the like most of the Western music that we're used to playing yeah. or, or listening to. And then when you start going into that, since it's like a, the approach even to the like scales or modes is, is different, it's yeah. uh, this idea that in the Western world, they basically at certain point simplified the number of like the combinations of sounds that you could make in order to make the harmonies and all those things exactly. to work right whereas in uh, this idea that you were saying about oh, a quarter of tone it's uh, it's a quarter but it's not really a quarter because you can depending on which makam which is which scale they will do say if it's going to be um, E half flat it's not being to be exactly half flat of another makam right yeah. I know maybe we lost a little bit of our audience uh, in this uh, more geeky uh, conversation yeah. But the idea is that in uh, Arabic music and in the modes in the Persian world, in the Turkish uh, world and um, and beyond, they're not limited to, as you said, like this uh, major and minor scales that allow the, the musician to have a wider range of sounds and make it yes. more rich, right? 
Yeah, cool. So let's talk a little bit about your instrument, your main instrument that uh, is the the kanum. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about the kanum and what it is? And the okay, to play it, you have to be a uh, eternal sufferer. It has seventy eight strings, which is a reduction from a hundred and five at one point. Thank God, it's only seventy eight. But the weather is unforgiving. If it's dry, the pegs get loose. If it's too humid, the pegs get too tight. It goes out of tune quite easily. It also has five pieces of fish skin under the bridge that get affected by humidity or dryness very quickly, putting your whole instrument out of tune. And on the left-hand side, you have levers to give you ninth of a tone, quarter tone, and whatever, half tone, full tone. And your two hands are separated. One is here, exactly, the right hand is right in front of you. The left hand is at an angle at the bottom. Your eyes cannot see the two hands at the same time. Hmm. So one, one hand has to go blind. Add to this notation. My old teacher said to me, don't use scores. Learn by heart. Learn it by heart and get rid of it because you can't look at the score and look at your hands. Mm -hmm. On top of this, if you have a conductor, you're in deep trouble. You need four eyes for the canoe alone. Two for the right hand, two for the left hand. Mm -hmm. Another two eye for the score, another two eye for the conductor. It's a nightmare. Oh, wow. Very, very difficult. <laughs> That's it. But then you learn not only pieces, but how to ornament. Mm -hmm. There is good ornament, there is bad ornament. Mm -hmm. How can you tell? Your ear and your taste. Mm -hmm. Then there is the... Uh, the issue of creative performance. You cannot and will not and should not play the same piece twice the same way. Mm -hmm. Every time you put an ornament in a different place, provided it is the right ornament. Mm -hmm. There's so many right ornaments. Right. So you're on stage, you're playing, you're not bound to a script. If I play Beethoven Sonata, I have to play Beethoven Sonata. I cannot add or remove any note. Mm -hmm. Not when I play canoe, I can add and remove notes. I can skip a section if I don't feel like doing it. Mm -hmm. Imagine playing Beethoven sonata and skipping the second movement. <laughs> you can't. So this is the beauty of Arabic music. Mm -hmm. The creative part of a performance makes the performer free, mm -hmm. not petrified and paranoid. And the audience, in Western music, they know every note of mm -hmm. your right. score. Arabic music, you have a lot of freedom, and that's so beautiful. Yeah, that's uh, that that's uh, that's fantastic. Like that's one of the things that uh, one of the many things that drew me to this specific kind of uh, of music was this idea that as the performer, you are in a way also the the creator. composer and the creator. Yes. And it's uh, and not only that, it's like you are there. So today I'm feeling this way. I this happened in my life or whatever, and then. You put all that uh, that feeling and who you are in the music itself yeah. right then, right? So in the music and like uh, it's sort of like the written score of like the, even if it's not the written score, even if it's like a known song, it's sort of an excuse for you to show who you are and uh, yeah. where you're going, which is why to me it's one of the uh, main things. Sometimes you go to a to a show and you want to see. I want to see that musician play exactly like he played in the 1970s, for example. In, yeah, like, okay. in Western music, and whereas like uh, here you were, in, it's part of the culture that oh, I'm going to see this uh, oud player or this kanun player. I want to see what he adds to the to the repertoire and to the through his ornamentations yes, and, yes, uh, yes. and everything. And uh, one thing that I wanted to ask you uh, about that about uh, ornamentations was when you're trying to um, ornament. You can ornament within the, um, like I said, and you are going to get the canoe later and the, like do some examples of that. But like, so you're trying to do, like you have the main melody and then you're trying to embellish the, the melody according to the way you were you, you want to do. Or you can go into, it's called the taxim, right? An improvisation, which is a different thing, yeah. right? So can you talk a little bit about... Uh, taxim, you're going to improvise. Mm -hmm. And to improvise properly, you have to spend a lot of time listening to great masters. Do not copy, never copy, because you never learn. Listen, then you do your own style. Mm -hmm. And 
the more you do it, the better you get at it. Right. And again, the taksim is improvised. Uh, there are ways to begin, ways to do something in the middle, and ways to end. There is a set of cadences. Every maqam has a set of cadences that would not work for another maqam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it, yeah. is it like a, something that is sort of built in or natural to that maqam yeah. that you would do a progression oh, yes. in one way or another way? That's right. It's sort of a compound of a lot of sub-phrases. Motives, very short motives, and they're not set in stone. Mm-hmm. And you can expand, you can reduce uh, how you string them together, mm-hmm. uh, the, the movement of the melody, the duration of the melody, your own taste. Mm-hmm. All these are factors mm-hmm. in your taksim. Yeah, and then just to go back to the idea of the, the ornamentation. So then uh, in the case of ornamentation would be, let's say, notes within notes, right? So if yeah. you have between the certain notes that are like the main melody, you would add certain things that would have different rhythmic patterns or different... Yeah. Uh, oh, okay, so that's... Uh, it's very much like when you play Bach and Scarlatti, all this ornamentation of the Baroque mm-hmm. that make music so beautiful. Mm-hmm. But at least they codify them in Western music. Right. We have not you know, sat down and codified these ornaments. We can. And you can do a great service to next generation. Okay, mm-hmm. here are 200 different ornaments. It's up to you to choose 10 of them. Right. Or all 200s. Mm-hmm. It's up to you. Mm-hmm. But that you should guide the new generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, which brings us to like one of the things that we, we started talking about in the beginning, which is part of your like <laughs> life's work that is finally getting to be like published soon right which is the your translation of the the book of songs right yeah. and uh, so can you talk a little bit about your research into yeah. that uh, it's not the translation of the book of songs okay. we cannot do that at this point because it has been edited it took the editors um, i think 50 years a team of scholars to edit the first edition Uh, Actually, no, it was the third edition, but it was a team of scholars doing it. And because they are not experts in every aspect, I mean, you have to have an expert in perfumes, Mm -hmm. expert in mascara, Mm -hmm. food, architecture, uh, furnitures, and music, and poetry, and prosody. So what I did, I said, okay, I can take care of the musical aspect of the Grand Book of Songs. So I spent 10 years going through 10,000 pages of the Book of Songs and entering the meaning of technical terms pertaining to instruments, rhythm, modes, musical forms, mm-hmm. uh, aesthetics, music analysis. It's a huge field. And I was surrounded by 17 dictionaries trying to figure out the, the meanings. And I'm hoping that this would be a step for other scholars to do a glossary. I, I did the music, that's a glossary of terms dealing with poetry, mm-hmm. furniture, architecture, you name it. I cannot do all of it. It's not my field. Mm-hmm. But it's once this is done, then you can do a final edition of the Grand Book of Songs. But that won't happen for another 200 years. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, so the, the, on the, can you talk a little bit more about like um, all the things that are involved in this uh, Book of Songs? Apparently it's not just uh, the idea of music, it's about all aspects of yes, uh, yes, performance. Yes. So can you talk a little so, bit about yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, the, the compiler, he was given grant for 50 years. And he said, well, I cannot give you the list of songs composed and the modes and the poet and the composer. That would be very boring. I'm going to tell you a particular song is sung. This is the mode or modes, because more than one composer set the poem to music. And they all set them to different modes. And then I'm going to tell you the story behind the song, to whom it was composed, by whom, why, what is the context? I mean, American anthropologists and ethnomusicologists think they've discovered the context. Hmm. Well, the context was so crucial in medieval Baghdad that they had to tell you a story about the song. Mm -hmm. 
and you have all these narrators talking about a particular song, analyzing it, etc., etc. Oh wow! So the, this is the beauty. It's a socio-culture and and uh, dealing with music, mm -hmm. the combination. Oh, that's amazing. And then in terms of that, the music that is in this massive work, right? I assume it's music that has been passed down over like generations and some of it even survived today. Do you know how they played? How does that no, work? No, by the time Isfahani was compiling it, a lot of the repertoire of a hundred years before had gone, finished, because right. it's oral. Some of the songs survived. Some survived for like 60 years, which mm -hmm. is wonderful. Mm -hmm. In, in the, by, by, you know, being transmitted orally. But the taste of the court changed. The rulers were no longer Arabs, they were Persian. They were not interested in medieval Arabic poetry. They didn't even know Arabic very well. Mm -hmm. So these musicians lost their jobs when there was a change of guards. Oh, See? interesting. So this mm -hmm. is one reason. Mm -hmm. And then you have the eternal problem, is music sinful? Because some people say music is bad, like alcohol is bad. Right, right. And music softens the emotion and leads to adultery. Hmm. Heaven forbid there'll be sex oh, right. between men and women. Yeah. Oh my Lord, so yeah. music is bad. Etc., <laughs> etc. Et But also, often music was performed in the context of a party. Mm -hmm. What do you do in a party? You eat and you drink alcohol. Mm -hmm. So music by itself is not bad. The context in which it was presented, associated I see. Uh -huh. with drinking, and that's against Islam, against God. Mm -hmm. It was considered by yeah. some people that time. Till now, I mean, yeah, yeah. many yeah. places would not have music. Yeah, of course. Yeah, this, uh, that's interesting. And then, um, but then there are like um, over time because, like, I know that some uh, like Mushahat songs, like they were like the poetry survives from a certain period, that's but it. then the music was composed much later, right? So later and then lost because you didn't have. We they, they did. I mean, there are two. There are really three stories, out of ten thousand pages, that talks about music transmitted in a written manner. Mm. Three stories about only two, two about two songs, and the transcription was so precise that the person who received the written notation managed to perform it like the composer had wanted it to be performed. Oh wow! But it is so lengthy; it takes so much time to do it. People didn't bother to use written transmission. Mm -hmm. Everything was done orally. Mm -hmm. So what's done orally gets lost, finished. Mm -hmm. So you have. All the songs, we know the poetry, the instrument used, the mode, the rhythm, oh. but, not, but not the melody. Oh, it's interesting. Gone. So, but in, in a way, it's sort of like an archaeology of music, right? Yeah. It's like you were digging to get fragments from different uh, aspects of the music. Yeah, but, but you can't really get to, no, the, to the soul, gone. to the melodies yeah. gone. Huh. Yeah. All right. Yeah. But you have to wait until the 13th century to get a transcription in the written form of six songs. Mm -hmm. Very precise. Mm -hmm. So they tell you, uh, this syllable of the poem takes this particular fret on the lute, on that particular string, and the duration is one or two or three or four beats. Mm -hmm. And etc. etc. Oh, interesting. And that's something that they were, like, in a way, already doing back uh, back then. Then, like, uh, they were, like... That, that, that we don't know. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Because the, 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 three, the three anecdotes that talks about two songs transmitted in a written fashion does not give you tables. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's sort of a bit obscure how it was done. Mm -hmm. and so but we know that they were like transmitting in a written form somehow back then. Yes. Oh, okay. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. But then again, it was too time consuming that they didn't bother to do it. Mm -hmm. They only did it because the person wanting it was in a different city. Ah. So he said, okay, send it to me by post, as opposed to send me one of your students to teach right. it to me. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah, because that's one of the things that, uh, from I remember, like reading like uh, a lot of um, like musicians and uh, scholars also, like everybody would actually go to like Baghdad to, to, oh, yeah. to learn things and stuff. But then oh, yeah. it was a much slower transmission, right, of, um, of repertoire and of traditions. Right? It's very difficult. The, Arabic yeah. music is very difficult. Oh, yeah. 
and you can have you have to have a very good ear if you don't it's going to take you longer to learn the song but then you have not only learn you have to memorize it then you have to feel comfortable with it you have to practice it after you learn it's not enough to learn it practice it to become a with no effort in it. Mm -hmm. yes. Becomes a part of yourself in a yes. way, right? Yeah, that's... All this stuff is documented in the Grand Book of Songs. That's fantastic. And that's, um, just to go back to, into your research into it, then you got aspects of this book that are more related to the music part of it, and then you are translating to both uh, Arabic and English, like to modern Arabic and to English. And, the, uh, the Arabic to Arabic was really what I did that took 10 years. Mm -hmm. It was different. This particular work is English translation of the anecdotes mm -hmm. with footnotes, commentary, explaining. I mean, every story is preceded by a short introduction mm -hmm. to frame it. Then you translate it, then you write the, uh, you analyze the stuff and right. explain it. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's fantastic. And I assume that takes like most of uh, your your time or I assume it's a very like time consuming thing that but you've been building it over the yeah. years like little by little yeah that's fantastic yeah the the other thing I wanted to ask you about is uh, this idea of it's a concept that I find one of the most like lovely in uh, Arabic music that is the concept of Tarab right oh yeah so if you want to talk a little bit about that I think it's Tarab great. is simply put an acute emotion strong emotion of joy or grief basically Uh, it can be induced by beautiful poetry, by beautiful speech, beautiful melody. Even meeting of the beloved makes you emotionally happy. It can be induced by a beautiful scenery. It causes tarab, it causes joy. Losing your beloved causes sadness. That also tarab. It can be joy, it can be grief. Mm -hmm. It's very powerful. And they have a chapter on Tarab. And that chapter, I think it's around 60 pages. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. But the other book, Arabic to Arabic Dictionary of the Rani, have 495 entries oh, for wow. Tarab alone. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, this, But Tarab, awesome. the effect of Tarab are manifold. It can cause you to cry, sob harm your body by slapping your face, mm -hmm. jump from your seat and fall. It can make you imagine that the earth is shaking, that the ceiling is being pierced, or the house is going to fall on your head. And some of the old black and white Egyptian movies show you people listening to Tarab. They grab their fez and they throw it, mm -hmm. and it gets caught in the light above, for example. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> And it is so powerful. So powerful. Yeah, it's interesting how it's sort of like a, what I find fascinating like in certain languages that they create words to express certain things yeah. that sometimes would take like 60 pages to explain something, yes. but we all feel. And uh, in this case, this uh, transcendent feeling and really being in connection with the artist and with, uh, with the emotion that, uh, that you're feeling uh, and Like now you said about the, the old Egyptian movies, it just I, I got reminded of these uh, I don't know like Beatles video of this uh, like a Kids fan crying. getting yes, like going yes, crazy yes. on it and That's something too. That's yeah. So it's it's very it's very interesting how like in Arabic music sometimes even something that you expect that you will get that from a great performance right from uh, see music from is very powerful. That's why they fight it. Right. A regime that's very conservative will fight music because music is so powerful. Right. It moves the masses. Mm -hmm. It may move them against the ruler. Right. Or the established government or whatever. Right. And it's something that um, I remember in many different cultures from my background being uh, Brazilian, like a lot of the a lot of the organization against uh, dictatorship in Brazil was done through music, right? You get like a couple of like simple songs that people can can sing and uh, go around uh, singing. And it's something that I know in Poland, they would get together in underground places to sing songs and uh, fight the establishment. And I assume yeah. it's the same thing with uh, in Egypt and, yeah. other, and other places in the Middle East. 
Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. So one of the things that I wanted to do now is uh, we've been talking about Arabic music and uh, the canoe. So it would be cool for us to do a little like demonstration of all these sure. uh, concepts that we are doing. So you take it away, whatever yeah, you want to do. You talk about Tarab. This is a small, small segment in the Taksim. It's not a long phrase, just a bit. It's a motif, call it. So this, this anyway, is a, it's an entry. It's a statement. It's a question. Answer. So the answer was, and then I elaborated on the answer, continued. Etc. And this is really the way I envision Taksim, it's a love poem. Mm-hmm. Always starts happy, always ends sad. <laughs> so here is meeting you just have a date and your beloved came and you're happy you're very happy you're having a wonderful time with her or him whatever so I'm, I'm, I develop what's happening Sort of flirtation. Sort of come and get me, come and get me. Okay, this. That's the ending of your taxim, mm-hmm. of, of a section of a taxim. I can go like going down in search. descend five notes mm-hmm. and that it. will depend on where you want to take the song as you said as if it was like yeah, love yeah. story oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. and then if you play that for a dancer her body movement always inspire you to do mm-hmm. more and more and more mm-hmm. and the, vice versa I think that's a good point to just to briefly talk about this too that uh, you not not only you as a, as a musician but like in Arabic music there is a deep connection of the dance and the music right oh, yeah, so it's uh, something I think is unique to or at least in the uh, Arabic world the way that they connected music and dance is yeah. uh, bar none one of the most uh, beautiful yeah, uh, things ever so can you talk a little bit about this relationship between uh, the musician and the dancer specifically in this context that we are talking about uh, now of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you, get, you get inspired by the dancer's movement and your playing inspires her and she inspires you and it builds up mm-hmm. and it's just it's, it's magic it's just magic mm-hmm. yeah I, I did yeah. Uh, I did play for a lot of dancers in Brazil I mean I was right it was an mm-hmm. amazing array of wonderful dancers yeah you don't have to play for too long and just you know get this feedback mm-hmm. yeah yeah, and, uh, and I remember you mentioning um, once like how one of the differences between like this, the Taksim sections in the older times compared to now that they want to dwell, it's a two, three minute thing, but the idea is for you to get into it and take build, your yeah. time and build and then uh, it's sort of like creating on the spot. With yeah, I, I person, need to, right? to do a good one. I need over and over around 15 to 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. The beginning is sort of trying to Test the ground, test the audience, test test the dancer, and just see how it goes. Right. It can be a disaster. It can be magic. Mm-hmm. On my on the DVD I did with Lulu, we had a seven minute taxi. Mm-hmm. She said, "I I like uh, Maqam Bayati." I said, "Okay, Lulu, we do that." 
and there was no rehearsal, no mm-hmm. editing. One shot of seven minutes. Oh, Magic. Mm-hmm. That just, I love what I did. I love the way she danced, and everything was in sync. Mm-hmm. One of yeah. the happiest moments in my life. It was just so well done. Oh, one, that's one. She's one of the the great dancers of uh, of Brazil, so and we'll make yeah. sure to track down this uh, this video that is one of your DVD series for dancers that we'll talk about later. But and see if we can put it online on our show notes for the for the episode for people to to take a look. One thing that I wanted to see, like since we have the canoe right yeah. now, is uh, can you show, for example, one, uh, because we were talking before, like I'm thinking more for the um, audience that is has not been introduced yet to Arabic music and these differences between uh, these uh, modes, these scales, yeah. like the makams. One thing that I think would be interesting to show was like, show for example, one regular like major scale if you can on the, yeah, on the sure. canoe, and then we can do one one makam and then come do a different one maybe sure. a bayat in Hawanda, or whatever you think is best. It just uh, I think it would be interesting to show the difference sound that you get. Sure. This is your major scale, which you call agam. You can play it as a scale. But this is just the building blocks. Mm-hmm. What do you do with it? The melodic movement. Mm-hmm. The movement of the melody, I go here. It's a dance. Mm-hmm. The, the music is dancing up and down. Mm-hmm. This is called intiqal in medieval Arabic or sair. Sair, the moving of note from note to note. Mm-hmm. And that is the most tricky part of a taksim. And the dancer has to be very sensitive to it, to follow it. She has to read my mind before I read my mind myself mm-hmm. and follow every note. And that's what Lulu did, it was Munira Magharib did also so well. Mm-hmm. And Claudia Khalida mm-hmm. in the uh, another video I have. Mm-hmm. Oh, Yana. Yana too. <laughs> How can I forget? Yeah. Yeah. For yeah. The, yeah, and for the audience, we were talking about my wife, Yana Komarnitska, that is uh, a dancer of uh, Oriental music and belly dance. So that's what we're talking about. That's what George yeah. just mentioned. She's also knowledgeable in music, which helps her dance so well. Yeah, yeah. That's a shout out to Yana. Yeah, yeah. We, love, we love you, Yana. <laughs> and um, so that's cool. So that would be like a major scale. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. then um, can you show an example of sure. like uh, an, another scale that is in? Uh, I'll, 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 like, pay, I'll pay the minor first. This is your major. Mm-hmm. I'm going to change some notes here and make it the minor scale mm-hmm. that we call Nehawen. And my E is no longer flat or natural. Mm-hmm. My E is in between. So I'm finishing. There you go. I went to rust. Right. Mm-hmm. Different feel. Different everything. Mm-hmm. And the dancer has to translate that with her body and her movement. style. This is the 19, 15, 19, 20. Mm-hmm. As if you are stoned on hashish. <laughs> These are called hashish music. Oh, that's awesome. 
<laughs> that's funny. And uh, that's one of the things that uh, it would be cool to for us to talk a little bit about that something that when we were having uh, a lunch before, we were discussing how you got these recordings of your uh, your teacher. Master, yeah. yeah, and the teacher of your teacher, yeah. right? I'll bring them for you upstairs. Yeah, Amazing. and then uh, later we can, um, yeah, I'll, I'll grab those and we'll, 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 we'll add that to the, sure. to the show. But uh, what I was thinking is uh, if you can, uh, like, just show us, like, some of the differences that would be from, like, an older style, like we just showed the <laughs> hashish style, what would be, like, what the teacher of your teacher would do sure, compared sure. to what your teacher would do? Yeah, yeah. For example, the, this, see, back then the taksim was measured. Can feel a beat to it, mm-hmm. which is very difficult because you have to start in a certain way and you have to end on the last beat. So mm-hmm. you have to play and listen to the drum and finish with the drum. You go like this. Something that was developed more modern, uh, more yeah. modern, more, more yeah. Modern. Cool, yeah. And the, in terms of ornamentation, because we were talking a little bit about that uh, before, can you show like what do you mean by the kind of ornamentation? Say, so for example, if you can show one little piece of a melody and then show how it would be ornamented, just to compare okay. a simple like melody with a melody with ornamentation. Sure. the melody. Which is nerve-wracking. Mm-hmm. It's not easy to play it yeah. simple like this. You need to no seriously. Like, yeah, so you imagine. go. The left hand in the canoon, the old old canoon style, you fill in with the left hand. Mm-hmm. Right hand is the melody, the filler is the left hand. So I double. Left hand. Left over right. As opposed to. So I can go. Add the left hand an octave lower. I can le- left hand above the right. Very beautiful. Mm-hmm. I can dampen. So many things you can do. So many things. in between so here I go very easy to do on the canoe it's a gruppetto in Italian mm-hmm. Italian music slow speed fast speed can also go a double gruppetto Or instead of down, 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 and then the note, I can go up and then down. But it makes no, when you do it slowly, it doesn't sound good, but fast.
beautiful cadences. Huh? Yeah, it's beautiful, beautiful cadences. Yeah. yeah. And this uh, specific canoe that you're using right now is this your workhorse canoe? Is this the one you usually use? Yeah, yeah. Because the, I, uh-huh. I put new pegs completely. Mm-hmm. I use the reamer and shaver to fix the holes and the peg at the exact the same angle, mm-hmm. so they don't get loose with the very tough weather in Canada. Right. Mm-hmm. But I have also the 1910, the 1900 or before canoe mm-hmm. that never needed anything. It always stays in tune. It has no levers. Mm-hmm. These are the levers that give me sharp, flat, half flat, whatever. Yeah. The other one has none of it. And every time you change maqam, you have to change tuning. Oh, I see. So yeah. it doesn't have that... Um technological shortcut of having right. this ever. Yeah, we'll we'll put on the show notes for the this episode a couple of photos that I took of your canoe so we can yeah, of course. so people can see because this is an audio podcast so people yeah, can yeah. see go on go on the website and take a look and see which to me talking about the aesthetics of uh, yeah. of music one of the things that I find also fascinating about uh, whenever you start getting into this kind of music is also the beauty of the instruments themselves oh, and yeah. how well Sounds they're so beautiful yeah and they're so well constructed and yes. they have yes. uh, they they look sound. the part yeah, they sound yeah. as yeah. they look right and <laughs> in, in great art great art yeah so first, uh, George, thank you for showing us. My the, pleasure. Yeah, this, the, <laughs> this is just like an introduction to to people of both your music and uh, your research and the canoe in case people haven't seen it. So I actually urge people to go take a look at George's website and check out his music and everything. In uh... And the photos are done by an amazing photographer. <laughs> yeah, like, Pedro. Yeah, yeah, full disclosure, uh, I actually did photos for uh, George for his, uh, for his website. And uh, in this podcast, my idea is to go a bit deeper with people that... I, that I love and I admire and to show their stories and things that inspire me. And it's one thing that I noticed is also a good excuse for me to ask questions that would not come normally in a regular social interaction. It's, uh, for example, I didn't know about your psycho teacher in the piano, like uh, back in Egypt. And I didn't know actually that you started with piano and then went into the canoe. It's a very, like, very interesting um, switch. uh, switch. One of the things that I wanted to to talk about, like we, when we were demonstrating the... um, the canoe part of that music we were talking a lot about the interaction with dancers and uh, can you talk more about how historically from a point of view like how, how much do we know how the dancers would interact with musicians in the courts or in uh, street dances like because i know how it is uh, today that it's spread all over the world especially like belly dance that is a worldwide phenomena you oh, can yeah. go to china you can go to everywhere everywhere and people are embracing this art form can you talk a little bit from a historical point of view I, what I, we know i don't think we, we, we know enough we know mm-hmm. the types of dance that were used we don't know the steps mm-hmm. But often musicians, dancers, and prostitutes were on the same level at one point. Mm-hmm. And another point, they were very much respected. So it depends really much on, on the patron who, who is at the court. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of years of history, yeah. right? So See, with Arabic music, including Persian and Ottoman, you're talking about 1,400 years of tradition. Mm-hmm. And we don't have enough scholars to work on the material. In Egypt, they're too busy working on Western music Mm -hmm. uh, instead of taking care of their own music. And we don't have facilities, enough facilities, enough libraries Mm -hmm. to have all these sources. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have manuscripts, you have books, you have dictionaries, biographical literature, bibliographical literature. It's, It's a huge field. Mm-hmm. And without these tools, you cannot do much research. Mm-hmm. I'm lucky to be in Toronto. We have Grover's Library that has over 10 million books. Mm-hmm. And almost everything to know about Arabic music in print is there. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, you know that. Because you are a rich society, and maintaining libraries and buying books is very expensive. Right. Yeah, yeah so... Um, and that's one of the things that your work is trying to... like put a dent into this thing that it's like you yeah. are getting these older manuscripts and these yeah. older uh, writings and uh, translating and trying to to uh, to sort to 
like sort it out, right? Yeah. One of the things I remember one other time we we we, we talked and it stayed in my mind. It's related to the idea of uh, language and the ways that you were saying how the Arabic from from medieval times, uh, how it's sometimes more precise. Yes. And I remember you saying like that they had specific words for different kinds of teaching. Right. So it was like if I was to imitate you, it would be as imitate the teacher or the master. It would be one word or like, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. For music education alone, you have 57 words. Mm. All kind of very subtle terms. And part of the teaching, you're the teacher, I'm the student. They don't say Pedro is teaching George. Alama. No. You say Daraba. I'm learning loot from you. Daraba is the third form of the verb Daraba. Includes two things. Striving and reciprocity. Hmm. So you're striving to teach me and I'm striving to learn from you. Mm -hmm. And you're showing me something and I reciprocate. This is oral transmission. Right. All of this is encapsulated into third form of Verdaraba, Daraba. Oh, wow. Interesting. So rich. And very precise when you know oh, the terminology, absolutely. very precise of what you're trying to do. Yes. And uh, it conveys a lot about the, the meanings uh, of uh, even the philosophy of teaching that, yes. they were, that yes. you're using, right? And it's very For composition, I can't remember also a lot of terms for mm -hmm. composing, forging, molding, composing, uh, stealing, when you steal melodies. Huh. Oh yeah, lots of theft would happen. Attribution, you attribute it yourself even though it's not yours. Or you steal the melody, put it on another poem to hide your theft. Huh. All this is documented and has precise terms. Oh wow. It's so much fun. Yeah, I imagine. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's like, it's the kind of problem that we see even, of course, today going on. Yeah. And, uh, and then you see how it was already like, at least between like scholars of this kind of thing, that they were like yeah. thinking about these things already, right. right? Even if in the culture they borrow from each other, they are aware yeah. that, oh, that's what you're doing, right? It's, oh yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, that's very, that's very interesting. Picking up on this idea that you were talking about how musicians and dancers, at certain times they had high status and other times they had lower status in, the, in society, that reminded me of your latest book that has a lot of interesting <laughs> uh, stories. And uh, so it's called Erotica, Love and Humor in Arabia, Spicy Stories from the Book of Songs. Can you talk a little bit about this project? Yeah, this is medieval Arabic porn. And that was the, uh, the basis for the Arabian Nights five centuries later. But this is much worse than the Arabian Nights. The Arabian Nights you can translate because it's not as massive a collection as the Grand Book of Songs. So the beauty of the Book of Songs, of course, material about poets and musicians, analysis of poetry and music and you name it, but also a lot of material on love. Mm -hmm. uh, platonic love, sexual love, uh, obsession with sex, obsession with love, heartbreaking love poetry. So you have this guy saying, I cried so much for my beloved to come. She has not come. I have no more tears in my eyes. I have to borrow an eye to cry with. Have you ever heard somebody borrowing an eye to cry with? And then he said, love at first is very easy, but then the young lover comes up with terrible pain later on, mm -hmm. which is so true and so moving. And the beauty, again, about the, the medieval society, medieval Islam and medieval Arabia, they were not homophobic. Hmm. So you have poetry praising heterosexuality and homosexuality, bisexuality. Mm -hmm. You have poems praising white, black, and yellow women. So it was not mm -hmm. racist. Mm -hmm. okay? And a lot of poems praising women, a lot of poems where women put men down. Mm -hmm. And we have the feeling that in the in modern Middle, Middle East, uh, women have no power. Of course, it's not true. Egyptian yeah. women are very powerful, mm -hmm. but they don't show it. But back then, for example, this poet says to a poetess, you know, I'm dying to do something with you. I mean, he wanted to make love to her. And what I will do will not hurt your back. 
So she answered in poetry, in the same meeting, the same rhyme, yes, sir, it will not hurt my back, but it, it will inflate my tummy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So <laughs> Very it's, clever. Uh, yeah, so it's uh, this uh, combination, as the title says, right, of erotic love and humor that Lord. is so intertwined yes. in the culture. Right? Yes, that, very much. Fantastic. And this material was translated from, uh, just to get the, the timeline correctly, so this is from the 10th century? Yeah, yeah. And the, it's okay. the same source. I mean, I did the, right. the whole dictionary, mm -hmm. Arabic to Arabic, mm -hmm. and as I was doing it, I found these stories. I put them in a different file. Right. And as I was doing the glossary, I also found other stories to put in my next book, mm -hmm. and that's musicology and socioculture issue of music right. and dance. Right. So, so we talk about theory, instrument, transmission, composition, performance, social status, startup, all of these things. And this is what you are working on uh, right now, now to yeah. finish the last uh, the last details for that, and yeah. it will be uh, released. Uh, Hopefully this year in Leiden, in Holland, mm -hmm. uh, oh. by Brill. I mean, I'm just waiting. The last step now is to get. Like I had my own private editor mm -hmm. that worked on the on the text, right. but that's not enough. It has to go to the editor at Braille in Leiden mm -hmm. to have one more reading and send me more corrections. So I need to work on that. Right, that's fantastic, yeah. And uh, congratulations on thank uh, you, sir. Thank you, sir. And uh, having the like the, this massive work being uh... forty years on and off. Oh wow, yes, yeah. that that's fantastic, and it's. Uh, that would put you like it's probably you are one of the people that know most about like an authority on this text specifically about that era about, about that, that era, era. yeah I see. yeah i mean some people sometimes say to me write me an, an article for a dictionary of 2000 words about islamic music from the 7th to the 20th century so i can't <laughs> right. i can't it's not possible mm -hmm. and i can do something up to the middle of the 10th century mm -hmm. but that's it that's mm -hmm. what i know Mm -hmm. And I spent 50 years on this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're going to show the sound of the canoe from the 19th century or mm -hmm. earlier, right? We'll just move to a different room to, to sure. do that recording. Before we do that, if you can tell people where they can find you and your website and all that kind of uh, information. GeorgeDimitrisawa.com GeorgeDimitrisawa.com Go check out uh, George's music and a lot of information on his website as well as his uh, recordings. So we're going to finish off by going and listening to some old style kind of uh, instrument. All right. Yeah. All right. So now we moved to a different room in yeah. uh, George's house where he has his collection of uh, instruments including tambourines and uh, and a lot of frame drums. There's a dahola next to me which is sort of like, a, it's a specific kind of Middle Eastern drum that is, has a very thick sound. We heard a canoon that is a bit more modern and now we're going to show the sound of an older style canoe. Can you talk a little bit about this relic that you have here? This relic, I bought it in 1974. I went to a collector. He had seven canoes. I played all seven and this one had the ruler with the uh, levers were hiding the ornaments. You can see the two different colors? Yes. So I knew it was a later addition to an antique instrument. And the sound was so powerful, I decided to buy it. Brought it here, removed the levers, put a new ruler that looked like 19th century canoe rulers. This is the, this is the grooves mm -hmm. that these, these strings go through before they get to the pegs. Mm -hmm. And I just brought it back to its original shape. The only thing that's left is to replace the nylon string with gut strings. Right. So instead of a hundred dollars, I have to spend a thousand. Oh wow! But since I'm crazy, I'll spend a thousand. <laughs> the canoe made all of gut strings. Yeah, and then you were saying that it's very hard to track the actual origin of instruments. But you said that you saw a publication from 1904. Is that correct? Yeah. Publication in Egypt in 1904, a sort of general introduction to music. And there's a photograph of an instrument, looks exactly like this one. The same angle here, the same angle here, mm -hmm. and uh, just exactly the same. Yeah. So this is probably late 19th century. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. We're going to show a photograph in the show notes of this uh, specific canoe and comparison with a few others because you really want to to see the craftsmanship and the work and you were even mentioning before we actually started recording how some of the original materials here is like the pegs are made of ivory, right? Yeah. So it's uh, the top, to transport. It's made of wood, very hard wood, mm -hmm. but the top is ornamented with a half cylinder. 
so they have half a sphere of ivory. Right. And here is a beautiful ivory, and that appears on my two CDs. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, so it's a little a little detail that people detail, can yeah. check out. And that's just one thing to mention that the artists for this podcast are specifically dancers, but if you're into that and into really appreciating Arabic music from a dance point of view, you can take a look at a number of DVDs and uh, and books that explain the rhythms, the makams, which are the modes of Arabic music, and all of that information is on your website and it will be on the show notes for this episode. So maybe you can go into this showing a little bit of how it sounds. Yeah. Sound. Yeah, it's beautiful. But if I want to change no, uh, Maqam, I'm here for example. I use my thumb to shorten the string. C, D, E, F flat. I play D sharp. Back to Rust. so powerful one of the things that i just noticed is how it's since the technique will be different to get to those notes yeah the forms of expression that you can do when you have to do uh in that using thing. one instrument or the other one actually informs and changes the way that you're actually mood, yes, yeah yes, and the, very much where you can you were able to to do right so uh i think my goal is that with this podcast we can have like sometimes get an idea from one area, for example, music, and then you apply to other kinds of uh, artistic and creative endeavors, right? So yeah. how my, one of the things to think about that I think it's like a cool takeaway from watching you play and demonstrate this specific technique that I haven't yeah. seen so close up first yeah, before, yeah, yeah. is that depending on the tools that you have, you'll have different kinds of artistic expression, right? And how yes. that can be translated in different kinds of yeah. art forms, right? Absolutely. So that kind of limit, it's very, very interesting. Thank you for showing me that. My pleasure. Cool. So uh, with that, George, thank you so much once again Volk. for being uh, with me. Thank you so much, George. Volk. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you. So that's it for today's show. Thank you for listening to the first episode of the Wanderings podcast. You can find show notes and links at pedrobonato.com slash podcast. I put there some photos of the canoe you heard on this podcast, and I'm sure you'll find it as beautiful as I do. If you like the show, I would love if you could share it with your friends or leave a review on iTunes. You can find me on all social media at Pedro Bonato, and you can find my photography work at pedrobonato.com. The music for the Wanderings podcast is provided by the Blue Dot Ensemble, a music and dance group exploring traditions from all over the planet where I am one of the founders and the lead drummer. You can find us at bluedotensemble.com. So tune in next week for another show. Until then, I urge you to keep following your curiosity, and I'm looking forward to our next wanderings together.